what he intends to do. So would you read with me starting in verse 23, and we'll go through to verse 15. I apologize, I said 9 earlier. Starting in verse 23 of chapter 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Would you pray with me again? Lord, this morning we are grateful that Christ has been lifted up so that all who believe in him may have eternal life. We're grateful for the means of this salvation as well. The new birth, birth from above, birth from heaven, not earthly, not of the flesh, but of the spirit. Lord, this morning we pray that you would enlighten us to the ways that we are perhaps walking contrary to the Spirit, contrary to the new birth that we know has happened at some point in our journey. And Lord, if that new birth hasn't happened, Lord, would you be so gracious as to reveal that to us, that we might heed the call of the gospel and obey the text that we've just read this morning. I ask for your Spirit now to speak through me, to hide away all that I am, and let Christ shine from his word. Lord, may we all on our hearts have the idea of John the Baptist that Jesus must increase and I, we must decrease. We thank you for the joy of that. This is not all doom and gloom, self-despising, but it is an acknowledgement of your greatness, of the glory that Christ has revealed to his true disciples. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I ended with a little illustration from the Chronicles of Narnia, and I thought the best way to start this sermon would be to do it at the beginning of the sermon. Actually, that wasn't the plan, but it kind of worked out that way. 
So towards the end of the horse and his boy, there's a place where uh, the three of the four main characters, the main main character is off somewhere else. And three of the four are waiting on the outskirts of Narnia to enter in. And they are, have been waiting for their friend to come back. They want to make sure that the mission was successful and that the king had been warned and that the attack had been met with stronger force and the battle was won. All those kinds of things are going on. And they're talking about Narnia. And Bree, the talking horse, is really the one who's the most knowledgeable because he remembers little bits of what it was like to be in Narnia. Um, the other talking horse and the younger girl that was with them, they had never been there. They don't know anything about it. So he's been telling them pieces about the kingdom of Narnia and the king of Narnia, Aslan, the lion. And he, one of the characters asks Bree, is he actually a lion? And he goes, no, of course he's not an actual lion. I'm pretty sure that we call him a lion because he is like a lion, because to his enemies he is like a lion, that, that he is ferocious, yes, but he is our good king. I'm sure he's a man. He has to be a human, otherwise he'd be a beast like the rest of us. He must be different than us. He must be something else. And as he's going on about what his expectations are about this lion Aslan and how he doesn't really think he's a literal lion with a mane and with whiskers, um, Lewis writes that as he's flapping his jaw and continuing to talk, uh, one of Aslan's whiskers brushes across the horse's neck and startles him, terrifies him, because he's, he's been afraid of lions throughout this whole book, and he doesn't want to admit that the king of his homeland could, in fact, also be a lion. And, of course, what he comes to find out is a shocking truth, that everything he assumed about what the king of Narnia was really like was totally wrong. It turned his world upside down to see that Aslan was indeed a real, literal lion. And, of course, this is a different book than The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where we get that famous line from Lewis about Aslan, that, you know, the Pevensies are asking the Beaver family, is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver says... No, of course he's not safe. He's a lion. Of course he's not safe. But he is good. Well, Bree and the horse's horse and his boy, the horse character in here, the talking horse, doesn't know if Aslan is really good. Now that he's found out that Aslan is a lion, everything is completely different. And in some ways, I think that this talking horse has a lot in common with Nicodemus. And I hope that that's not retro retroactively disrespectful to compare the teacher of Israel with a talking horse in a children's book. But there are some similarities that we're going to see here. What we want to look at today in the section that I read earlier is three lessons relating to that theological term, regeneration. Regeneration is the big doctrine of today. And this idea of the new birth. So we'll find these three lessons to be very, very simple, but to go very, very deep. So the first lesson found in that section of the end of chapter 2 is a very simple one that isn't going to shock any of you. That's not going to turn your lives around to find out that Jesus knows everything about your life. Okay, you're all still here. You're all still sitting in your seats. No one burst out and ran out of the building. Because we know this, don't we? Jesus knows everything about my life. What is there to be shocking about it? We'll talk about the depth of that. Secondly, in the first eight verses of chapter 3, the second lesson will be that Jesus knows what you need most. Still not super shocking, is it? He knows all things about me. He's going to know what I need more than anything. And then the last lesson, lesson three from verses 9 through 15, will be that Jesus knows if we'll receive him or not. He knows how we're going to respond. Does that make you uncomfortable? 
He's already decided in one part. Are we all just puppets that are bending to his will without any interact interaction of our own? How does regeneration work? What is our part? What do we need to do? What do we need to believe? How do we need to act? What needs to happen to bring about regeneration? There's a lot of questions that theologians for the centuries have asked. How do we make this salvation thing happen? And God's message throughout all of Scripture has always been, you can't do anything. That probably sits just fine with you this morning, doesn't it? But think about any other element of your life. If I took control from your life in one other place, be it your family, your household, your work, your education, whatever it might be, if I took what you sensed as your control away from that, would that change things? And yet, I think we would all answer yes. We would at least struggle to some degree. And yet when we talk about the things of God, these heavenly things that Jesus is describing to Nicodemus that he cannot receive, sometimes we kind of just sit back and go, okay, that's fine. Well, Nicodemus isn't going to be okay with what Jesus says to him. But before we get to Nicodemus, let's talk about why we're looking at the end of chapter 2 along with these first few verses of chapter 3. And that is because verses 23 through 25 are an authorial note to describe a transition that's happening in Jesus' ministry. So far, we've had the prologue, that beautiful Advent series of looking at those verses. Sorry, the passage was beautiful. I'm not saying the Advent series was necessarily beautiful. But that beautiful time of looking at God's word to see that he was in the beginning, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Jumping down to verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, that of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then we move to John the Baptist, giving a testimony about who he is, who he is. He says, I am not the Christ, saying that the most important thing about me is who I'm not. That's the starting point. Who are you, John the Baptist? I'm not the one you're looking for, but I know that he's coming. And this is what I'm going to tell you about him. John the Baptist explained. We see Jesus calling his first disciples. That simple call, come and you will see, that is replicated among his disciples as they call others to follow Christ. Then we saw the wedding at Cana in a very simple, not very spiritual sounding setting of just a regular old wedding. Jesus brings about this miraculous and wonderful sign that expresses the generous joy of the kingdom of God, of the true wedding feast of the Lamb where the wine will be greater than any wine that could be made here on earth and will never run out. Then last week we saw Jesus cleanse the temple, right? Bring, bringing himself into the place of worship and finding those things that are out of place, right? Not even necessarily those things that are bad, just simply out of place. The marketplace should have been in the marketplace, not in the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus brings a message to them about that. And then we come to this transition, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. That sounds really good, right? Signs are happening. There were many of them because many people came to believe. It says believe. But then it says Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. That word entrust and the word believe from the previous verse are the exact same word. Okay, he didn't, as people were entrusting themselves to Christ, he was not entrusting himself to them. 
Seems a little backwards, doesn't it? Because the whole testimony of John, the author here, is about Jesus being the Son of God. And in the end of the book, we see his intention very clearly. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that in believing, you might have life in his name. Well, if that's John's purpose, that has to be Jesus' purpose. Why is it that he's not entrusting himself to those that are entrusting themselves to him? It says, Jesus in his part did not entrust himself because he knew all people. He did not need anyone to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. I give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Jesus is the Son of God. He is not an ordinary man, though he is in every way like us, except without sin. When people were coming to him, he knew what was genuine and real faith and what was a sign of a need for regeneration, a need for real faith to come as a result of a new birth. So Jesus has shown his authority over the temple, over worship. He's shown his authority over nature by turning water into wine just as easily as you could ever imagine. Now he's going to show his authority over our hearts and our minds. This is not a very American 2021 message, is it? Who should have authority over our minds? We mentioned a poem a few weeks back where that line is instilled in so many's minds, I am the captain of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I am in charge of my fate. I will bring myself to where I need to be. I will decide what I need to know about myself. I will decide what my deepest needs are, and I will decide where I receive the things that I need. See, all those lessons that we just mentioned at the beginning that are going to outline this sermon are things that we ultimately grab onto for ourselves. I am the only one who knows as much about my life as anyone else could possibly. And if you want to know anything about me, you are at my mercy to express that to you. In whatever fashion I want, even if it completely contradicts nature and what is plain and obvious in creation. Jesus knows what is inside our hearts. In one sense... When we are suffering, when we are weak, when we are in pain, it brings us comfort, right? Glad to know that my high priest, if I am in Christ, I'm glad to know that he knows my sufferings, right? That he has been tempted in every way just as I am and yet without sin. That there's nothing I could talk to Jesus about and truly say, you just don't understand this. He understands far deeply, far more deeply than we even do in our own struggles. Well, people were not, being, were not having Christ entrust himself to them because they were believing simply because of the works, because of the signs. So herein we find our problem that we're going to see Nicodemus as a sort of example of. Our conflict is that we res- if we respond simply to what God is doing, if we set our hearts and our minds simply on what God is doing, the result will be not us putting our faith in him, but unfortunately, putting our faith in ourselves. That's a weird sentence. Because we want to testify about the good things that Christ has done, right? But when we talk about putting faith somewhere, according to the Bible, we're talking about putting our faith not in an action, not in the action of what happened at the cross even. 
I don't know, I'm like on this, I, I feel like I'm literally on a precipice theologically that I'm like, you know, we got to be careful with this here. We put our faith in Christ himself, right? Because many people died on a cross during the, Rome, the age of the Roman Empire, right? It was a criminal's death. But Christ was the unique one who took not the punishment that he deserved, but the punishment that we deserve and bore all of the wrath of God, not just the wrath of the Roman Empire. Remember, they all, Pontius Pilate said, look, he's innocent. I'm washing my hands of this. If you're going to kill him, then do it. Of course, we know Pontius Pilate wasn't truly innocent because none of us are innocent of the blood of Christ. But if we simply look to the things around us and say, I'm going to follow God more when I see him doing something in my life. Do you realize we don't see even a fraction on our best Christian days with our best Christian eyes? We don't even see a fraction of what God is doing. I mean, even if you were to unveil to you the spiritual reality of your life in this very moment, it would only be smaller than the tip of the iceberg of the entire universe, the entire cosmos that he has created and is holding together by the word of his power. Signs and true faith have to be accompanied by a declaration of Christ and a response to who Jesus is, not to the sign. Do you remember with the wedding in Cana where the master of the feast said, look, you brought out the best wine now. People usually save that for later. He was responding to the sign. There was no message of who Christ was there. Is he saved because he saw the water turn to wine? Of course not. If I tell you, hey, somebody died on a wooden cross for you 2,000 years ago so that you could be saved, but I don't tell you that it was the sinless Son of God who deserved nothing of what he endured on your behalf, you can't be saved without that crucial element, right? And this is, in effect, what's going on. People are believing the signs, but Christ is able to discern whether true faith is being respond, is, is the response or if it is simply something like what we'll see in chapter 6. I keep thinking about chapter 6. Hey, you want a homework assignment? I know you do. Read John chapter 6 this afternoon about the uh, feeding of the 5,000 and how Jesus responds to them. It's very much like this in, in chapter 2. Well, Nicodemus will come to us as the example of this problem, the one who is, is seeing a sign and is going to basically compute in his own mind what he has seen with what he knows and then blurt out a response that he thinks is going to sound really spiritual. And do you notice Jesus doesn't even answer his question directly, right? I know this is an interesting thing here, too, because it does say that he answered, and we'll get there in a second. But I want us to be mindful of this matter of signs, because today, and really for, throughout the whole of church history, many Christians have been so focused on signs, miracles, wonders, all those kinds of things. And they're in Scripture. Jesus did a ton of them. His apostles did so many. Many believers afterwards, and I believe, I firmly do believe, that there's nothing in the Bible that says that they stop, right? I think that there are parts of the world where Christians particularly who don't hold the whole scripture in their homes as we are so blessed to do may have in fact had visions of Christ in dreams or things like that. I don't know. I'm not here to say that it doesn't happen at all. But what I am going to say is that if we simply trust in those signs and if we put all of our attention on what God does and not who he is, we're going to miss him entirely. 
That is why false doctrine comes around those who emphasize signs and wonders and miracles and put out on their church sign, we're having a healing service this Wednesday night. Are you kidding me? How do you know? It drives me crazy. Can you tell? Okay. That was totally a useless rabbit trail in some part, but I hope that you're careful about who you listen to, and I will throw myself into that category as well. Be careful about what you hear from this music stand. Okay? Make sure that this word is being preached and not anything else. Okay, so Nicodemus. Let's get into Nicodemus here. So this is lesson two. So instead of Jesus responding to Nicodemus and, and addressing what he says, he's actually going to give him our last two lessons directly to Nicodemus. Um, verses one through eight, this is the lesson two. Jesus knows what you need most. And we see that immediately in his response to Nicodemus. The man came to Jesus by night, says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, is that a true or a false statement? Tell me. This is an easy question. I'm not, this isn't. Okay, true or false? Is Nicodemus right? He's very right, yeah? Okay? He, he is right in assessing that what Jesus is doing is proof that God is with him. Now, here comes the trick part too. Is it possible to do signs and wonders apart from the power of God? Yeah. Yikes, be careful about that, okay? I'm gonna just leave that open. You guys can just decide that on your own. Okay, so... Nicodemus says, we know that you are a teacher sent from God. And what does he call him? Nicodemus says, Rabbi. Well, well, who is Nicodemus? We learn later on from Jesus that he is the teacher of Israel. He's a very high position. At first we see here that he was a ruler among the Jews. But then again, Jesus gives him this high title. You are a teacher of Israel. And yet, what Jesus knows that Nicodemus doesn't expect or perhaps is blind to himself is that his very setting in which he approaches Jesus is an expression of his own heart. When does he meet with Jesus? Look at the beginning of chapter 3. Something we, yeah, we, we kind of gloss over sometimes. Or perhaps we look at it and say he met at night. Well, he was really embarrassed about talking with Jesus. He was afraid of what other people would think. Clearly, he's talking in the third person, or in the plural first person here, when he says, we know this. There are other Pharisees that agree with Nicodemus that Jesus must be somebody sent from God, that he's a teacher sent from God. True? Yes, that is true. Is that the whole truth and nothing but the truth? No, it's not the whole truth. There's a lot more to that that Nicodemus needs to realize. But does Jesus respond to his question and say, listen, I'm not just a teacher, okay? I don't know if this has been obvious to you or not. You should be like the first person to get this, but I am the son of God. Does he have this whole conversation? He changes things. Although John does say in verse three, Jesus answered him. So he's not ignoring what Nicodemus has said, but he's setting him straight. Truly, truly, I say to you who recognize who I am, you say, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you have been regenerated and made new, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. And that's what you need most. Yeah, do we need Jesus to teach us? Of course we do. Daily. But you can come to church every single Sunday and learn everything about the Bible and remain completely unchanged and die and go to hell for eternity. Yikes. If you're not regenerated, if you're not born again, if, if faith has not set root in your heart and made you new, all the learning in the world is nothing. That's what Nicodemus is. He's the teacher of Israel. He's a ruler of the Jews. And he has nothing 
Jesus says, look, this is going to be hard for you to understand on multiple levels. You say that I'm a teacher sent from God. I'm telling you, you must be born again. It's a very interesting phrase, and we hear it all the time, right? We even call ourselves that, don't we, right? Born-again Christians. Um, several, a handful of, gen- I, I, I'll be generous here, I don't want to, but a couple generations ago, right, this, this phrase became even more popular, you know, probably around Billy Graham's preaching especially. Um, this phrase, born again, why is it that Jesus is using this idea of being born again? Well, in that, he is addressing our deep, real, most deep, most real need. And we see that in Ephesians 2. Remember, the epistles kind of come around and give us commentary on the Gospels and um, point us back to what Christ has done and what he's taught us. But in Ephesians 2, chapter 1, Paul writes, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I had every intention of reading on to 10, but I mean, we should stop right there, shouldn't we? By grace, you have been saved because of the great love with which he loved us. Love. God loves you in your spiritual deadness apart from Christ. So why is it so important that Jesus doesn't just say, hey, you need to be retaught, right? Nicodemus says, you're a teacher. Teach me. Nicodemus, or Jesus says, buddy, you need a lot more than that. And this is going to shatter Nicodemus' world. A teacher of teachers, a teacher of Israel, the ruler of the Jews, needs to be born again. So you can understand his response, can't you? How can a man be born when he is old? And he asks this really, really dumb question, isn't it? Right? Of course this is not what Jesus is talking about. There's a lot of trains of thought. Why is it that Nicodemus responds in this way? Most of the time what we hear is, well, he's only thinking naturalistically and he can't think spiritually. That's probably a part of it. But I also think that Nicodemus, as a teacher who has just heard that basically he needs to start everything over, I imagine he's a little frustrated with Jesus. I imagine that that maybe he's, he's willing to listen, but he's certainly not willing to receive who Christ is for himself yet. And in that frustration, I more so hear his tone of, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to enter into my mother's womb again and be born? I know that's physically impossible, but I'm going to ask you because what you're telling me sounds impossible, whether we're talking physically or spiritually. And is Nicodemus right? Yes. He's absolutely right. In his own understanding, in his own thinking, and everything he's experienced to the world, we can't be born again on our own. We can't enact any of this. We can't produce the new birth in and of ourselves. I'm still in Ephesians. Okay, back to John. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He wants him to learn about kingdom of God stuff, about heaven things, about, about great, great things of God's plan of redemption. But Nicodemus doesn't even get the idea of regeneration. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he says next. Okay, so we've got born again, born from above, a heavenly birth, not just an earthly birth. Nicodemus is interested in the stuff from above, but he doesn't really quite grasp it at all yet. 
So then Jesus explains it again and says, unless you're born of water and the Spirit. These are not two different things here. Uh, A lot of times we draw allusions to baptism. I think that's an error of understanding, not that it wrecks your whole Christianity or anything like that. But really in the scripture, and and I'll let D.A. Carson back me up on this because he gave me the idea in the first place. But in, in Ezekiel 36 and 37, talking about the spirit and water over and over, he's talking about uh, cleansing and renewal. Okay, so these two things go hand in hand. Uh, this is not, um, as our I believe our translation capitalizes the S here in spirit. Let's see here. I missed that. I'm sorry. Yeah, born of water and the spirit. There's a lot of discussion. Are we talking about the spirit enacting birth or are we talking about a new nature? Uh, so that's, that's what's going on here. This, this combination of cleansing and renewal. The depth of our need is not simply you need to take another class. You need to show up at Sunday school. You need to go to prayer meeting. You need to read your Bible every day. The deepest need that we have is absolutely new birth. Birth from above, something completely out of our control. Must be born of water and the Spirit, cleansed and renewed. And only by Christ's blood can we do that. Only by his work at the cross can we have his righteousness attributed to us. You know, we trust in ourselves day by day. And if you tell me that you don't, then you are lying. The most spiritual thing we do cannot be untouched by our own self-righteousness, our own self-reliance, right? Whatever it may be, we are always going to face that temptation. We are always going to deal with the fact that everything else in the world that we live in works upon one's own achievement and accomplishments or on another besides Christ. Are you trying to straighten up without Jesus knowing? Because you remember, he knows everything about you. Do you kind of, like, I thought of this really dumb analogy. I'm just going to use it. But when you all came into church today, I imagine that you came in your cars and you parked your cars nicely in the parking lot. And and on your way here, you followed all the traffic laws and the, the lights. Nobody ran a red light or anything, not on a Sunday, right? You all went the speed limit. You all followed all the instructions. Well, of course, we can say, well, there's some gray area there because we know we can go five over. But what if, instead of following all the rules of riding on the road, you realize, you know what, if I go through everyone's yard, you know what I'm talking about, Jeff, right? If I went through everyone's yard and just all the backyards and and just took a shortcut, I could still get to church and I could get there quicker. Did anybody do that today? Did you drive through anybody's yard to get here? It'd be kind of weird. You'd have some problems to deal with after church. Right? But, but I have no way of knowing what you've done to sort of get yourself to church on Sunday morning and ready to do our, our worship thing that we want to do. And yet Christ knows every bit of your journey up to this very point and beyond as well. Aslan is standing right behind you the whole time and his whiskers are slowly approaching your cheek. If you don't know Christ, he's not far. If you know him, he has not left. He's here with you, and he loves you because of the great love with which he loved you. He he wants to cause you to be born again. He wants to establish you in that truth. He wants to encourage you in that today. But it takes, what what it brings, rather, is the complete opposite. It doesn't take a radical personal transformation. It brings a radical personal transformation, right? None of us, at the moment of our birth, came into the world and said, I'm going to be a human, and I'm going to someday do all these things. No, we... 
we came into life and, and we were taken care of up until we started to learn how to interact with the world. And, and I mean, to some degree, we never become totally independent, do we? The radical personal transformation that is best described as being born again is something that happens to us, not something that we create. So how can a man be born again? This is Nicodemus's response in verse 9. How can these things be? What are you talking about here? And this is our, let's see, yeah. So, so how can these things be? He's saying, how does this happen? How can a man be born again? This is his limited response on the outside, prompted by his spiritual darkness on the inside. Because you remember, he met Jesus at night. And night in the Gospel of John, darkness is always referring to something spiritual here. And, and really what we see, and Jesus addresses this, uh, Lord willing, we'll see it next week in verses 16 on to 21. Uh, but Jesus addresses this darkness that's in Nicodemus' heart. It's not just the darkness around them, it's darkness that's inside of him. And, and Nicodemus, as is, is Jesus is telling him about regeneration, he would be fine with addressing the fact that, yeah, I know the world around me. Yes, regeneration is what this world needs. All the people that sit in my, uh, my Torah class on Saturday evenings, they need regeneration. They need some help. Boy, the, the Roman soldiers that are patrolling our town all the time and acting like they own the place, because they basically did at the time, they need regeneration. For us, it might be different. It might be those people that go to such and such a church or work at such and such a place or hold such and such a political position. It's very easy for us to recognize the need for regeneration in other people's lives, but when it comes to our own personal darkness, this is where we struggle the most. And even if we have been regenerated, we so often set that truth aside and live just like we used to before, trusting in our own efforts. We find out with Paul that we ourselves are the chief of all sinners those real sinners, the, the curse on nature, all those things we see outside of us, when we really take that hard look at the darkness of our own hearts, what we're going to find is a serious problem that can only be fixed by new birth. So, regeneration. Two things about regeneration. One, that we learn here, we cannot produce it. Jesus says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. If you are dead in your trespasses and sins, the Bible would equate that to being in the flesh only and not having spiritual life. So he's saying, look, a, a flesh and flesh cannot come together and make spirit. Flesh can only produce flesh. We only are able to produce what we're able to produce according to our own means and our own abilities and our own nature. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, we have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade away like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Because of what we are spiritually, our lostness and our spiritual deadness apart from Christ, we fade away like a leaf. And Isaiah tells us our iniquities, our sin, like the wind, takes us away. We cannot produce regeneration. Secondly, we cannot control it. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's an interesting wordplay that Jesus is bringing in here because he's talking about wind and spirit. In the Greek, it's the same word. So there's an easy analogy to be made. 
And we understand this, right, very simply. You go outside on a windy day, and nobody says, oh, I can tell the wind's going to start blowing this way. You know, you have to look at a flag or something waving around to, to get an idea of what the Spirit is doing, what the wind is doing. But you can't tell where it came from or where it's going unless you're a meteorologist. But we know how good at their jobs they are. We can't control it. As Isaiah said, the wind of our sin takes us away. We need a, power, a more powerful wind to bring us back. And that wind is the Holy Spirit. We can't control it. We can't produce it. Do you have a control problem? Do you have a production problem? Do you have an idea of, of like, like either A, like I, I'm really a control person. I need to make sure that I have some ounce of control in every avenue of my life when really the truth is I have no control at all. Or do you have like a, a production problem where you feel like I'm only really worth something as long as I can produce something, as long as I can create something and say, here's the thing that I did. To some degree, we all struggle with both of those problems. And again, even if we have been regenerated, so often we revert back to those ways of thinking and those ways of acting in every other area of life, and then it seeps into our worship. And we need Jesus to cleanse our hearts in that regard. Because we talked about Spurgeon this morning, I thought I would do a weird thing and quote him in the sermon, right? In his devotional morning and evening, he says that regeneration is not an operation that a man performs for himself. It is a new principle. It is infused with him that works in his heart, renews the soul, and affects his whole life. That is regeneration. That is new birth. That is birth from heaven, from above. That is birth of water and of the spirit. A complete change of who we are. Not just hitting the reset button and going back to the Garden of Eden and seeing if we can make a better decision than eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is giving us a new nature. We're not just reset back to like the old, the first man who gets his sin washed away, but we're given a new nature that is like Christ's and we are in him. The last lesson, lesson three. Jesus knows if you'll receive him. Verses 9 through 15. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? How does this happen? What do I need to do? What studying do I need to do? Do I have to do a certain prayer? Is there a good deed? Is there something I can produce? Is there some way I can control this and make this happen? Nicodemus' answer is, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? You're the teacher of Israel, man. And you're asking me how these things can be? He's saying you're acting like everything before this in the Bible had nothing to do with what I'm telling you when really everything before this moment has led up to this moment on purpose. And so he refers to Ezekiel 36 that Eva read earlier in verses 24 through 27. Look at that again briefly. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Do you hear that from John 3? You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That is not a heart of sinfulness, but a flesh, a softening compared to the stone there, a hard heart that doesn't listen to God. A heart of flesh is a heart that listens to God and that bends to his will, not to their own. And then, of course, Ezekiel 37 is alluded to in this section as well with the valley of dry bones. Listen to this. Ezekiel says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out into the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. Behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? 
This is interesting because who also uses that title, son of man? Jesus, right? Ezekiel says, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So he prophesies, read Ezekiel 37 later. The wind blows and the bones come back to life and muscle and skin and it's a person that is created by the act of God. But he still commands them, doesn't he? commanding the bones. And that is where we meet up with this beautiful work of God in regeneration that we do not simply sit in the back and just wait for it to be over, but we respond to because he has made us new, because these things are going on in us at the moment of salvation. This is, a, this is an instantaneous change the new birth is. This is not, we're not talking about sanctification, that process of becoming more like Christ, but this is given a new, being given a new nature, a new starting point being cleansed from our old sins. Well, if Nicodemus' problem is that he's forgetting some very important things about Scripture, I wonder if we do the same. I know I do, and again, much of my job I spend looking at this book. So I imagine it's something we all struggle with, right? That we, we leave behind the things that we know are true but don't think are so pertinent. I would really like a sermon about how I can be more patient or how I can be more kind or how I can be more se- successful at work. But what I'm telling you today as we're going through God's word is that he says that your deepest need is to be born again. And if you are born again, your deepest need is to remember that and to walk according to it. Walk in step with the spirit who gave you that new life. Jesus knows if we will receive him because he is the one who gives that regeneration and we are called to receive it. This is good news. If you're hearing it today, it means you either have an opportunity to receive that work of the Spirit or to remember and walk according to it again. My favorite living preacher, Alistair Begg, says this about regeneration. He says, the gospel is not a word of encouragement to those who are sort of well-meaning people would like to add a little religion or a little Jesus in their life. The word of the gospel is a word that comes to the rebel heart that says, I am a rebel against God. I may be indifferent to him, I may be antagonistic to him, but I am actually rebelling against him. Christ then comes through his word and says, I am commanding you to do an about turn, to repent of your sins and to believe in me. And the individual says, there's no way that that's going to happen. It will take a miracle for that to happen. Yes, it will. That is the miracle of regeneration. And my friends, I would tell you this, that if you know you've been regenerated and you know you have this new birth and yet you're struggling and you're wondering, why am I not submitting to Christ and always following myself? You need to come back to this truth. Walk according to the new nature, not the old nature. If we're not walking according to the new nature, we must be walking according to the old nature. And the old nature tells us to control and to produce and to to have ourselves as our source of faith. And Christ, our true rabbi, teaches us that the depth of our sin problem requires so radical a transformation that we can't enact, that we can't produce, but that he, as the lifted up sacrifice, provides everything necessary for eternal life. Let's go back to John 3, and we will close this off here. 
He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended. This is verse 13. Oh, I need to back up, sorry. We speak of what we know, verse 11. Bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony, our real problem. We're not receiving what Christ has to say. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Christ is our only source of regeneration. We're not going to find this anywhere else. We've, we've, we've put the nail in the coffin. I'm not going to be able to do it myself, but I'm not going to be able to find anyone else who's going to be able to do it for me either. Only he who came down from heaven can bring a heavenly birth to us and make us new. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the true sign. This is the substance behind the signs that everyone was focused on. Boy, I could sit at this wedding feast and drink this wine for the rest of my life. Man, I would love to see more people healed. I would love all these things in this broken world to be fixed. I would like my needs to be met. I would like to see something miraculous that shows me in my mind definitively that Christ is real, that God exists, that everything in this book is true. But this book serves as the sign because it points us as a testimony to the Son of God. The true sign is the serpent raised up in the wilderness. You know, in Nicodemus' ears, he would have been thinking, what, you're comparing yourself to a snake? Don't you know what snakes do? I mean, in the beginning of the Bible, a snake, problem, bad. We don't want snakes around. And you're telling me that you're like a serpent raised up in the wilderness? What is this story? It's from Numbers 21, if you want to check it out later. You should. The people of Israel were being rebellious to God. And so he sent these poisonous snakes to go and bite them. And many of them died from the poison. And many of them who were, who were dying from the poison were saved because Moses was told to make a bronze serpent, put it up on a stake, and that everyone who looks at it could be healed, could be saved from the fate of death that they deserve. Jesus says, this is the true sign. This is what I'm really here to do. I'm going to die in the place of my people. I'm going to give my life and be the only means for this new birth to happen. So here comes your part, church. Here comes your part, non-believer. Look to Christ. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The act of belief in Numbers 21 was not to go to the, br the bronze snake and perform some religious activity or do something impressive or present much money and gold. Or, it was to look at the bronze serpent. This morning we talked about Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers in the 1800s. And his conversion story is just this story. From Isaiah chapter 45 or 44, he came into a church to hear a message from that passage and he was just told, look unto me all the ends of the earth and be saved. And he did. After 15 years of, of being around the church and understanding a lot about who God is, all the teaching, all the books that he could have read, he had read Pilgrim's Progress multiple times at that point, but it was a simple look. Look to Christ and be saved all the ends of the earth. No one is safe from the gaze of the God who is going to pour out wrath on all evildoers, but no one is without an option to be saved from that. 
It is to look to the bronze serpent, to the true bronze serpent, to Christ. The serpent brought physical life, but the Son of God will give spiritual life. This is what we need to receive daily, not just one time, but to remember and preach the gospel to ourselves all over and over and over every day so that we don't revert to our old ways of thinking, so that we don't act like the rest of the world that we're living in. And this is our repentance for today, what we need to repent of, of not looking to Christ, looking to ourselves, of producing and of controlling. But look to the Son of Man who is lifted up for you that you might be saved. We can't control it. We can't enact it. We can't produce it. But he has. We are called to respond. And if you're responding by faith, that means that he has brought regeneration into your life. If, you, if, if he keeps you, if you are his, then it is because he started this work of making you new. So look to him continuously, church, just as Israel looked to the serpent in the wilderness. Let your old self be renewed day by day by doing so. There's nothing better for you to do for yourself. Your deepest need that Jesus knew was that you would hear the gospel and that you would hear it over and over and over again. Reminded, not to be regenerated every single day, but to be reminded of the regeneration that happened and the sanctification, the, the process of growing more like Christ that is going on day by day. Without a continual look to Christ, I'm just going to revert back to my old ways. So go home today. Reread this passage. Think about your new birth. Celebrate what Christ has done on your behalf. Put yourself in Nicodemus's spot. Can your dry bones live? Can you set aside all of your accomplishments, everything that you've ever done, and say, for me to live is Christ, not myself? I'm just going to read this prayer as our, our closing before we sing, Yet Not I, But Christ in Me. This is from the Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. And listen to what uh, this one says. Let, let's be our closing prayer for the sermon. O God of the highest heaven, occupy the throne of my heart. Take full possession and reign supreme. Lay low every rebel lust. Let no vile passion resist thy holy war. Manifest thy mighty power and make me thine forever. Thou art worthy to be praised with my every breath, loved with my every faculty of soul, served with my every act of life. Thou hast loved me, espoused me, received me, purchased me, washed me, favored me, clothed and adorned me. When I was worthless, vile, soiled and polluted, I was dead in sin, having no eyes to see thee, no ears to hear thee, no taste to relish thy joys, no intelligence to know thee. But thy spirit has quickened me, has brought me into a new world as a new creature, has given me spiritual perception, has opened to me thy word as light, guide, solace, and joy. Thy presence is to me a treasure of unending peace. No provocation can part me from thy sympathy. For thou hast drawn me with the cords of love and dost forgive me daily and hourly. Oh, help me then to walk worthy of thy love, my hopes and my vocation. Keep me, for I cannot keep myself. Protect me from that, protect me that no evil befall me. Let me lay aside every sin admired of many. Help me to walk by thy side, lean on thy arm, hold converse with thee, that henceforth I may be salt of the earth and a blessing to all. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us, please?